Kevin Spiegel. I'm co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, together with my co-editor, Dr. Brian Lacey from the Mayo Clinic. And for this month's podcast, it's my honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Arnie Wald, who is a professor of medicine uh, and public health at the University of Wisconsin and a member of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. And he's the first author of the latest ACG clinical guidelines on the management of benign anal rectal disorders. So Dr. Wall, thanks so much for being with us today. Delighted to be here, Brennan, thank you. So I'm really excited to talk to you about these guidelines because they're just so pragmatic. I mean, as clinical gastroenterologists, we see these disorders all the time, every day. I mean, every day we go to clinic, there is a 100% chance that we will find one or more of these, if it's just a hemorrhoid, if nothing else. That's in this guideline. So this is a guideline that I highly recommend our listeners and readers to download. It's already been downloaded well over a thousand times, even at the point of us recording this, and I'm sure will continue to be downloaded. But I urge everyone to take a look at these guidelines. We'll talk about them today in some depth, but there's so much more in these guidelines that we won't get to today. I just want to start with that caveat for our listeners to take a look at these and read them carefully. I want to congratulate you and your co-authors and give you a chance to introduce who worked with you on these guidelines and a little bit about how they came about. Well, as you may know, Brennan, we wrote some guidelines that were for the ACG that were published in 2014. And at that time, there were four of us, myself, Dr. Adil Barucha, who's at the Mayo Clinic, Bill Whitehead is at UNC, and a surgeon, and for these upgraded guidelines, we kept the original core intact. Those guys are still with me. But more importantly, we added a number of new people to add diversity and more of an international flavor to it. So, for example, Alison Malcolm is in uh, University of Sydney in Australia. Dr. Jose Rems Troche is at the University at Veracruz, Mexico. So they were added. And then Dr. Masarad Zushi is a colorectal surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic in, in Cleveland. So she gave us the surgical aspects of these. And finally, uh, Dr. Lemkowski from UCLA served as our great evaluator and really proved invaluable in determining the importance and actually the quality of the evidence that we use. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, you going through the co-authors who should all be credited and congratulated for this document and also for emphasizing, as with all the ACG clinical guidelines, the reliance on uh, evidence levels is very important. So that can underlie the strength of your recommendations, which again, I recommend everyone as they uh, take a look at these guidelines to understand the strength of recommendation for the various points in this guideline. So why don't we start with a guideline start which is defecatory disorders, also called DDs. And of course, defecatory disorders relate to very common set of conditions where marked typically by constipation or sense of incomplete evacuation. But I think some of the tricky parts come around, all right, is this an outlet problem or is this just sort of run-of-the-mill constipation? How well can the symptoms alone distinguish or not distinguish? between, you know, a, a real anal rectal problem versus something else uh, more proximal. Does, does that help clinicians or not? 
Yeah, and and this is dealt with in, in our so-called concepts, which are uh, recommendations that could be not that were not allowed to be evaluated by the grade recommendations. So our very first point is that you should think of a defecatory disorder when you present with a combination of the symptoms that are listed: uh, defecatory difficulty, sense of incomplete evacuation, and so forth. The frequency or infrequency of defecation is not a factor. If you believe that, we feel that a digital rectal examination, which is a really undertaught uh, mm. skill in gastroenterology, should be done to make sure that you're not dealing with something that's more structural. And also to give you a sense of, of what the patient can do with their muscles when they're squeezing and straining. But we make the point that you can't make a diagnosis of a defecatory a dysfunction without the aid of a diagnostic testing. And the two that we focus on are anal rectal manometry with its characteristic patterns and the balloon expulsion time, which is a simple test that one can even perform in the office. And we set out the criteria. The point we wanna emphasize, because I see this in my own practice, is that either one alone cannot be used as a diagnosis. For a defecatory disorder, there has to be a combination of the two to proceed ahead. And if there's any ambiguity, We'll sometimes use defecography, which is a barium-based test, to rule out structural disorders and the like. Manometry, if you will, can define what are the possible functional abnormalities because this becomes the basis for what we call biofeedback or muscle retraining. So if you see where the pattern is abnormal, the therapist can work on correcting those patterns in terms of hopefully overcoming the defecatory problem. And so that is the centrality, uh, the choice of the patient. We have a, an outline which is given, but we want to emphasize that we don't do these tests unless they're not responding to what's out there. In other words, the difficult patient, the one that may be seen in referral, where they're just not responding to the laxatives and other conventional things that we do. So, so that's, there's a lot to unpack there, and uh, maybe we can back up and kind of go through some of what you just described, because uh, what you just described is well summarized in the guideline as well in the form of a sort of stepwise algorithm. Uh, for those of you that do have access to this or look at it afterwards in figure one, it's easy to remember, figure one is the figure that kind of breaks down the sequence of steps that that uh, you just presented to us. But let's just take a step back and talk about that digital rectal exam for a moment. Because sure. as you pointed out, it's uncommonly applied, which is really shocking to me. I mean, I was in clinic just this week, teaching clinic with uh, some residents and had a patient with severe constipation. And I, of course, asked, what did the rectal reveal? And the answer was, I didn't know to do a rectal. I didn't even know to do that. Is that something I should do? And I sort of facetiously said the contraindications would be either the patient doesn't have a rectum or you don't have a finger, right? Those are the two options for why you didn't do the rectal exam. So it's not done nearly you enough. Just, you just entered my world, Brennan. Yeah, I, I to try to give our listeners a sense of, of where you're coming from when you write these guidelines because you point out how infrequently they're done. And even by gastroenterologists, because we'll frequently say, oh, well, we're going to scope, them, right? So I might as well just scope them. But so just talk to us a little bit, just pragmatically, when you do a rectal exam in a patient, let's say, who has symptoms suggestive of a defecatory disorder, what do you do? What are the steps you take and what are you looking for specifically? 
Well, of course, um, it goes through the first the inspection process um, and then excluding things that could be associated with defecatory difficulty. Things like a rectal prolapse, for example, that, and you'd have to ask the patient to strain to sometimes do that. A simple rectal examination, of course, would reveal perhaps a, a tumor, a mass, or something like that. But then going through that and not seeing any structural problems, the digital examination allows you to assess the muscles, the anal centers, and the puborectalis. And the act of defecation involves straining to increase rectal pressure and relaxing muscles to allow defecation to pass. Now you can do that by just asking the patient to, to do that. And if, for example, the anal sphincters contract instead of relax, or the puborectalis muscle contracts instead of relaxes, or the effort is not very great, there's almost no pressure, you can begin to discern, even on the rectal examination, what may be functionally amiss. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a simple examination, but somehow we've decided to treat the anal rectums like um, the mouth and the throat. Well, that's, let's leave that to the colorectal surgeons and, or the ENT people. When in fact, it's an important examination. And it always strikes me that people come refer to me for constipation and never had a rectum. We try to emphasize in the quiet lines the importance of learning to do this comfortably and with some degree of comfort. Mm -hmm. We hope to convince our faculty of the same. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dare to dream. One of the points, the more subtle points, is a perineal descent. Could, could you tell us, what are you looking for there uh, in terms of the degree of perineal descent and, and its implications for clinical diagnosis? When some person is bearing down and relaxing the muscles, the perineum will descend anywhere from two to three centimeters. This reflects the increased intra-abdominal pressures uh, and the relaxation of the pelvic floor. The failure to descend might indicate that pressures are insufficient or something is preventing that from happening. On the other hand, excessive perineal descent beyond four or five centimeters or the actual extrusion of the of rectum can indicate something like pelvic floor prolapse. And that of course could be a reason either the cause of the defecatory difficulty or the result of it proceeding. And that's where the chicken and egg comes in. Did the perineal, excess perineal descent occur because of the defecatory difficulty? Or in fact, is it because of it? Mm -hmm. uh, and so again, very simple evaluation, bedside, with of course, a monitor, a nurse or medical assistant be in the room. So, so you're pointing out, we can't say this enough, that there's a lot to learn from the digital rectal exam. And you point out in the guidelines that rectal exam is fairly sensitive and specific for diagnosing dyssynergia. If you had a gold standard like anal rectal manometry, you're already in the sort of 70 to 80 plus percent range of sensitivity specificity just from using your finger. And so it seems really a waste to not take the time to do that simple examination and learn a lot from, from that alone. So I think that goes without saying, but we'll say it again just to make the point. And so let's say now you suspect there may be dyssynergic defecation from your examination. Where do you go next? So you talked about this a bit already. And of course, we know that biofeedback is highly effective for dyssynergic defecation, but typically you're going to do some kind of additional diagnostic before you start a whole series of biofeedback training. 
Uh, so you mentioned uh, several tests there. You mentioned earlier the anorectal manometry and especially the balloon expulsion test. Tell us more about what order you do them in. Do you do one verse first, the other second? Because there's a little bit of variation, I think, uh, in practice around this. Yeah. Well, we do it together. So if someone orders an anorectal manometry for this, they're going to get both. They're going to get the manometry first, followed by the balloon expulsion. One could conceive of having that ability to do a balloon expulsion test in a practitioner's office. Mm -hmm. And if the balloon can't be expelled within the requisite time to say, okay, now I'm gonna send it to a center because I don't do anal rectomanometry. Mm -hmm. But in point of fact, one needs to have abnormalities in both tests in order to proceed ahead. And the reason for that is because anal rectomanometry, what's going on, the pattern that suggests dyssynergia can be seen in otherwise healthy individuals, but those healthy individuals are able to expel the balloon. So if you have a possible abnormality, but you can expel the balloon, you generally think that would be sufficient to overcome it. Whereas if you had an abnormal balloon expulsion, but a normal anal rectal manometry, now you'd say, well, perhaps there's another reason and say a defecography, a barium study might allow you to pick up a structural problem that you can't appreciate in, in the lab. Mm -hmm. So, but if you just do manometry and decide that that's a defecation problem, you're going to be right more often than you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Even if you select patients the way we do it. And that's why we emphasize both. Got it. Now, you did mention defecography, and the guidelines talk about the two most common forms, the sort of MR versus the more traditional barium defecography with a commode. Uh, can you talk to us about when you do one versus the other? What, what should we know about that? The vast majority will use barium, and the reason for that, it's relatively simple. Many or most centers don't use MRI for that. <clears throat> and many MRIs are not able to do the defecography in the seated position, which mm -hmm. is what you want to do. Right. So yes, at Mayo Clinic and maybe another place you can get an MR and that's very good. But a simple barium where you put in thickened barium paste in, have a patient sit in a commode and then record the efforts while the patient squeezes, pushes down and so forth. Uh, if you have an experienced radiologist, it can be very helpful. I will tell you it will not make you popular with your patients. They'll remember it even if you help them, but they'll recall what that test you made me do when we had to get the information. And, and I'm always express my sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I understand what it had to be done. So It's interesting you say that because as I was reading the guidelines, it just so happens I, I'm teaching a class in our grad school right now that involves design thinking. And part of design thinking is empathizing with patients and their experience in the health system because that can help us redesign health systems. And, then, and so anyway, that was in my mind as I was reading the guidelines <laughs> and thinking, Boy, I wonder if, if like we should know what it's like to do this. I recently had a colonoscopy unsedated. My first colonoscopy, <laughs> I decided to do it unsedated because I wanted to know what it's like. I wanted to understand. It turns out it really wasn't so bad, but but I, I don't know that I want to go through a barium uh, defecography. Anyway, the bigger point is we do order lots of things without fully understanding what the patient experience is like as they go through it. So those, those points are well taken. Well, no, no one test is a gold standard. And often 
as we see in the other parts of the guideline, it's a combination of tests that you need to, to make a decision. And, and so you really just can't get away with manometry where you're laying on a table on your side versus defecography where you're seating mm -hmm. uh, and, and where a balloon is different than barium and so forth, right. but it's a composite. So speaking of other tests, um, uh, before we move on to another condition, I just want to wrap up a little bit here. So there's, you talk about the colonic transit studies and maybe the most common is the radiopaque marker study, um, you know, which historically is used to help distinguish sort of normal transit from slow transit from uh, outlet obstruction in terms of constipated patients. Um, so, but the, the, the guideline pointed out that there are some caveats to, first of all, when to do that study, uh, whether to do it, and even how to interpret it. Uh, you mind going through a little bit on that? Yeah, I, I think what, what we found, of course, and this would not be expected, that if you had slow transit with markers by whatever technique, this could occur in at least one of two situations. Either you can have colonic dysmotility, a neuromuscular issue, mm -hmm. or you could have a problem in the defecatory angle and then a backup. And the, the markers and their distribution doesn't allow you to make that distinction. So since it's probably more common that you're going to find a defecatory difficulty or an abnormality, we always go with manometry and balloon expulsion first. If those are negative, then when we do a colonic transit, we'll know that if it's slow, it's not because of that, it must be in the colon itself. And of course, the colon marker study is easy to do. You have the equipment, you send it to the radiologist, but you can often be, and finding a normal colonic transit does not exclude a defecation disorder because those patients could have a bowel movement every day, but it's an hour on the toilet every morning and a lot of straining and so forth. So that's why we don't think that the transit is your primary initial test for constipation. Right. So you really should reserve it for people who have had anal rectal manometry and balloon expulsion. There's no clear evidence of dyssynergia, but you're still, they're still having symptoms and, and that, that's the time to do it. It sounds like, right. According to the guidelines. Yeah. And it's in that algorithm, which of course we really want people to read closely because I think it takes you step-by-step step through the process and what happens if it's positive, negative and so forth. Right. Okay, so let's move ahead. There's, again, we're going to skip around this a little bit. There's uh, just to reinforce, there's a lot to read, a lot to go through, but I wanted to just talk about a couple other things here. So proctalgia, we see, we see from time to time, this can be a frustrating condition to manage often because we really don't necessarily have great management tools in some cases. So the guidelines talk about chronic proctalgia and of course, proctalgia fugax, which is very striking when it occurs and terribly sharp pain is fleeting in nature. And I think we've all seen patients like this. Um, tell us uh, what we should know uh, on a high level about these conditions. Well, uh, this of course is a difficult area because we don't quite understand the pathophysiology of, of everything that we're seeing. But simply put, chronic proctalgia is pelvic pain, which occurs in the absence of other causes of pain, which again, you are helped by a good rectal examination history and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we simply divide the duration of proctalgia into above and below 20 minutes to distinguish chronic as opposed to recurrent. So it's not the frequency with which these occur, but the duration in which they occur. 
For chronic proctalgia, the issue really becomes, and if it's not due to an obvious source, what is the possible mechanism? And based upon a single well-done study, uh, we have found that when you examine a patient um, with proctalgia and you find tenderness on one or the other side of the levator muscle, cuborectalis, this heightens the possibility that you're dealing with something involving that muscle system. Mm-hmm. And for that term, we use the levator syndrome. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can have identical presentation and have no such tenderness. And then we call that idiopathic chronic proctalgia. The importance of that comes from the single study that was done a number of years ago, in which they took patients who had levator syndrome and then did anal rectal manometry. And those patients who had a dysenergic pattern, they didn't have constipation versus those who didn't. The ones with dysenergia who responded to biofeedback did much better uh, than any other group, either the placebo and more specifically, the ones who didn't have an abnormality on manometry. That study has never been repeated. Mm-hmm. It was done well. It's listed as low quality evidence. Mm-hmm. But in a disorder where you have no choices, or very little choices, it does represent one reason why we would recommend manometry. Not necessarily balloon expulsion, but manometry to help guide us to see whether biofeedback would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, do, you know, biofeedback is so important. Also, some, sometimes we make strong recommendations based on somewhat weaker evidence because the therapies do no harm. So if you have a therapy that does harm, it's going to rate a little bit lower when you're dealing with so-called benign disorders. Mm-hmm. So biofeedback, very helpful, but I'd love to see her. <laughs> I'd love to see someone repeat that study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, the more acute form of proctalgia. Um, what should we know about that? Well, um, it's, it's a benign agonizing disorder. Uh, no one has an idea of why it occurs. It's thought to be due to muscle spasm. They could occur frequently or not so frequently, but because of their very nature, no one can do studies. By the time you see the patient, they're generally asymptomatic. And so there are absolutely no studies um, that we have. And therefore the best thing is to try to explain it to the patient and to do no harm. Mm-hmm. Don't resort to medications um, that are like throwing pasta on the wall and seeing what sticks because most of the things that you'll do will cause more harm than good. So it truly is an unknown black box, but mm-hmm. At least patients should know that they're not alone in, in the world and sometimes this happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, for, for example, people will sometimes prescribe topical nitroglycerin, type, topical calcium channel blockers, and we'll talk about that in a moment for fissures mm-hmm. where maybe it's more appropriate, but the guidelines really do not recommend those topical um, therapeutics for, um, for proctalgia. Right. Not knowing the cause makes it very difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. And even the topical medicines can sometimes have side effects. So, uh, and that it gets worse when people are getting Botox injections into this or that muscle, and then it's becoming a little bit more damaging. And that for that, there is no evidence at all. So regarding fissures, um, and very, very common, I said at the top that, you know, you're, we're going to see these conditions all day long in clinic. 
Um, I think we all know what a fissure is. Uh, typically is along the sort of posterior midline, sometimes anterior midline. The guidelines point out that if they're lateral in nature, that might be suspicious of some other condition um, rather than a sort of run of the mill fissure. So, you know, for run of the mill fissures, uh, somebody's got a recurrent severe pain. It occurred after maybe, um, you know, particularly large bowel movement or there was some kind of traumatic event. Um, we, the guidelines talk about medical management with different topicals. And, um, you know, what, what's your recommendation? Because there, there are a few topicals available um, for sort of low-grade fissures. Um, what, what should our listeners know? The treatment is based on the concept that when you have a fissure, there's spasm of the anal sphincter muscle. And because of that spasm, there's reduced blood supply to the area of damage. And that's why they continue to fester on. And so we specifically define chronic anal fissures, that which go on for a minimum of eight to 12 weeks on the assumption that many fissures will heal on themselves. At that point, it's not likely to heal. And the use of either a calcium channel blocker or nitroglycerin is premised on the concept that these will relax the internal sphincter smooth muscle, open up the blood channels and allow the fissure to heal. Similar case can be made for Botox or uh, injections, which are considered a bit more invasive. Although these are common, the, the studies out there are not very good. And that's why you get this low evidence type of, of thing uh, for a number of reasons. But it does seem that uh, say a calcium channel blocker ointment twice a day, once a day for a period of four weeks can allow these fissures to heal. The difference might be knowing more than 60 versus 40% spontaneously. So, but on the other hand, it's, it's not a harmful thing. It's only when they fail, calcium channel blockers fail. Some people would recommend Botox injections and other people would go to lateral sphincterotomy. And there is probably our strongest recommendation based upon the best uh, volume of data that a lateral sphincterotomy appropriately done will be very effective for that. So it becomes a surgical procedure. And that's probably, despite the fact that this is done all the time, it's amazing how poor our grader <laughs> assessed the, the literature when you really dig down deep into it. But these, the stepwise progress we think is, is, is reasonable. So let's end with hemorrhoids. <laughs> Why not? And as I mentioned, very, very common conditions. Typically, we think of hemorrhoids as often a condition that if they get out of hand, we need to really have the surgeons handle it. But of course, there's a lot that can be done in primary care and a lot that we can do in GI as well. The guidelines refer to sort of the four types of hemorrhoids, you know, the traditional type one, where it doesn't really protrude, and type two, it might come out, but goes back in spontaneously, type three, you need to use your finger to push it back in. And I think type four, it's not going back in no matter what you try. So I think uh, I got that right, hopefully. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about in our last few minutes here, like what should the GI know about, about hemorrhoids when they come to us? Where is that zone between sending them to the surgeons and sort of more typical just primary care stuff? Where, where does the GI fall into that spectrum of management? My first answer is not in the guidelines. 
But what the GI should know when they're doing a colonoscopy and they're retroflexing their scope and when they see dilated anal veins, these are not hemorrhoids, they're not primary hemorrhoids. It's most surgery, and this has been written about recently, um, we do not define hemorrhoids as hemorrhoids unless they bleed. We're talking about the non-pro. So those vessels that you see that you can say are not truly hemorrhoids, they're just dilated anal vessels. Mm. At that point, a, a, you divide those uh, processes in uh, for two reasons. Uh, the major causes of, of hemorrhoidal morbidity are you're going to be bleeding or they're going to be prolapse and all the other possibilities. For the non-prolapsing hemorrhoid or for the ones that just bleed and so forth, um, there, I think the data are, are, are very good. A rubber band um, uh, approach, and there are different ways of doing that that are very amenable to the gastroenterologist can be very effective in reducing the, the morbidity of recurrent bleeding and things of that nature. Once you get out to uh, hemorrhoids that are prolapsing, but have to be pushed back, it becomes a bit more of a question of what you're going to do surgically. And of course, there's no question that's in stage four that you're going to get surgery. And there we make pretty specific guidelines. There's one guideline that's really for the surgeons saying, um, say a hemorrhoid apexy as opposed to a Doppler associated thing might be better, but that's not for the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist, um, it's conservative treatment. And then if you believe that, and no better than two uh, hemorrhoids, internal hemorrhoids, you can ban them. Mm -hmm. And um, again, there's a number of people in the ACG who talk about this every year uh, as an office procedure, and it can be done by a skilled gastroenterologist as well as a, as a surgeon. Yeah, I think that's a key point there is that we don't have to send them all to the surgeons. You know, I don't personally do it, but those colleagues of mine that do really say this is pretty straightforward procedure. All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll end there. I do want to point out that there's more to the guidelines. We've uh, already had a very fruitful conversation, but the guidelines also discuss fecal incontinence, the kind of other side of all of this, the flip side. Very important discussion. I think we could do an entire podcast just on fecal incontinence. Uh, maybe for our future date and time. But again, I want to really uh, thank you so much for you and your colleagues' work on behalf of the college and on behalf of the journal for writing this spectacular guideline. This is will be a lasting uh, legacy for you and your colleagues. I also want to personally thank you for all the work that you've done in our field. Thank you very much again. And again, on behalf of our co-editors, the American Journal of Gastroenterology and my co-editor-in-chief, Brian Lacey, I want to thank you all for listening. And until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>